morning, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Keith Manry. I am a member here at Calvary Hills, um, and uh, I'm also uh, on the full side of the house. I am an active duty Air Force chaplain and the lead chaplain for basic military training. I uh, lead a team of 17 uh, members, chaplains, and religious affairs airmen who take care of our Air Force trainees each and every day at Lackland Air Force Base. If you are new here this morning, you may not be aware of the fact that we are going through a transition here at Calvary Hills Baptist Church. This is our first Sunday without a pastor. And so later today in a business meeting that will follow the church, you're going to have a chance uh, to vote on me as your interim preacher. Uh, so I'm really uh, on trial, I guess, this morning. So we'll see how that goes and how you, what you decide. But um, I just want to tell you, it's, it's an honor to be here and to be able to share uh, the word with you this morning. Before I start, though, I do want to acknowledge the fact that um, today, for some of you, is a sad Sunday. This is the first Sunday without your pastor. It's the first Sunday that you've come to church and Jared hasn't been here in a couple of years now. And I know there's grief and there are some sad hearts. And, and you know, as Jared and I, several months ago, began talking about this Sunday, because this Sunday wasn't originally planned to be his first Sunday not here. This Sunday, there's actually another emphasis. There was an emphasis this morning on evangelism training. And there's going to be another meeting after the, the uh, church meeting this afternoon by the missions team about church planting. In fact, this morning, I'm going to be introducing you to someone in a little while that's here as a result of months of conversation about an initiative that's in the works to plant churches here in San Antonio. And I have to tell you that after Jared announced that he was leaving, that he was moving on, I wrestled with what do I preach this morning? And how do I help us at Calvary Hills transition through this time? But you know, God laid it on my heart that no church is about any one man. It's not about our past pastor, and it's not about our future pastor. The church of Jesus Christ is about proclaiming the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ until he comes. It's about the mission that we're called to. And, and we're going to say goodbye to folks, and we're going to greet new folks. And Pastor Jared has been called to do another work, and we celebrate with him. And we are in confident expectation of the fact that God has already selected another man to be here to take this job. We know that. And so we wait on God now. And in the meantime, we cannot stop being who God has called us to be as a church. So I want us to think this morning about a very critical text, the Great Commission. And, and I, before we do that, I, I'd like you to use your imagination, if you will. The President of the United States, as most of you probably are aware, this past week delivered the State of the Union address. And I want you to imagine, if you will, that at the end of that State of the Union address, our President had said something like this. My fellow Americans, our nation is in a time of great duress. The threat to our nation is not from without, but from within. My administration has learned that our birth rate is lagging behind our mortality rate. In fact, we're experiencing such a loss of Americans each and every year that in 25 years, experts tell me that we will have lost the equivalent of the combined populations of California, Texas, and Georgia. 
25 years after that, if things don't change, we will be 50% of the nation we are today. And 50 years after that, if things haven't changed, America will cease to exist. Americans, I come before you tonight to, to, to implore you to help us reverse this trend. To put it simply, we need you to have children. It's your responsibility to fill our great land with new life, to reverse this trend before it's too late. Our future as Americans depends on you. Now, as bizarre as that scenario seems, that is the state of the church in the United States of America today. Did you know this morning that when you came to Calvary Hills, there were approximately 135 to 150 fewer churches open this week than there were last week? Did you further know that somewhere in the neighborhood of roughly 7,000 churches will close their doors this year in the United States? And that if a Barna poll is correct, that one in five churches will close their doors in the next year to 18 months because of the impact of COVID-19. Unless churches begin to reproduce the number of kingdom posts in our community that are advancing the work of the gospel against the front lines of the enemy is going to continue to be diminished, continue to dwindle to a place of near extinction here in the United States. Now, let me be clear. I do not believe for a moment that the Church of Jesus Christ Universal is at risk of extinction. You see, while Americans may have lost an ambition for the gospel, the gospel itself has an ambition, and the gospel's ambition is insatiable. The gospel itself will not be stopped. The gospel will not be thwarted. God will not be um, uh, prevented from accomplishing his purposes. It will be successful at prevailing against the gates of hell themselves. And the gospel will be proclaimed until, as the prophet Habakkuk wrote, the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Now, how will that be accomplished on the North American continent? I don't know. Will it involve many of the churches that are here today? I don't know. I can't tell you what tomorrow will look like or next year, but here's what I do know. The mission has not changed. Christ must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. So this morning, I want to look at that Great Commission, the text that we are very familiar with. And as we do, I want to suggest to you that all too often we have failed to understand the complete picture of the Great Commission. Yes, we understand the importance of personal evangelism, and Angelo did a fantastic job this morning. And if you didn't get a chance to be a part of that, I really would encourage you to come and be a part of those trainings, because we need to be out sharing our faith. But there's a more complete picture of the Great Commission that I think the Church of the United States today needs to wake up to. I'm going to talk about what that is. Before we do, let's go to the text itself and work our way through it. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Turn there with me. And once you get your finger there in, in, in that place, let's bow our heads together in prayer. God, I pray for the next few minutes that as we, we focus in with laser-like intensity on your word, it is living and active, we focus in on the words of Jesus Christ, not just to the disciples, but to us here in this place. That you would birth within us a passion and a dedication, a resolve, a commitment 
to multiplying disciple-making factories, to planting churches, to being a church here that is part of an orchard where the gospel spreads like seed across this land and to the very nations themselves. And I pray that over these next few minutes, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in your sight would be pleasing and that, God, you would choose to speak through me and, if necessary, in spite of me. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read these verses together. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. So let's get into this text together. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this text quoted. Maybe you have it set to memory yourself. You've heard it preached on. It's famously called the Great Commission. And you may also remember that the Gospels and the book of Acts record at least four accounts of Jesus commissioning his disciples. This is just one, but arguably the most renowned. When we come to this last chapter of Matthew, we discover the events that have led to this moment, the context of these words. Jesus has been crucified, he died, was buried, but on the third day we know that he has risen from the grave, but the news of that resurrection has not yet reached the ends of the earth. By the point of this story, Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who had gone to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body, but they found the tomb empty. An angel of the Lord appears to those women. He tells those women to go and to spread the news of the resurrection of Jesus to his disciples. And as they go, Jesus meets them on their way. And what do the women do? The women worship the resurrected Jesus. Jesus tells them to go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee where they would see him. Now, one of the things we oftentimes miss in this text is the distance between Jerusalem and Galilee. Did you know it was some 80 to 90 miles? Imagine this afternoon taking off and walking close to Austin, Texas. It would take you a little while to get there. I don't know how they got there. I don't know how long it took them, but it was geographically quite a distance. But I imagine they went with a sense of earnestness, a sense of excitement about what they were going to find there. They, they get to um, there to Galilee, and our text uh, takes place from there. If you've got your outlines from your bulletin this morning, I'm going to outline five principles. I want you to take notes there. They'll be on the screen in front of you as well. The first is the persons. Who are the actors in the Great Commission? And here's what I suggest to you. The Great Commission requires faithful while flawed followers. Imagine for a moment that you are these disciples. You'd seen Jesus die, and now these two women claim that he is alive, that the body you had seen come down from the cross has once again been filled with life, and he's alive. What do you do? 
Well, you do what the women have said. You go. You go to Galilee where uh, Jesus has said he's going to meet you. So go to verses 16 and 17. Matthew says, when the 11 disciples, who are now short one disciple from the original 12, Judas, who has betrayed Jesus and has committed suicide, when, when the 11 disciples arrived in Galilee on the mountain, they saw him and they did what? What does the text tell us they did? They worshiped. The verb is literally, it means to, to prostrate oneself. It, it means to, to do so in an attitude of complete dependence and obedience and submission. We can't help but think of other occasions. And, and I, I considered these as I studied this week when the disciples and others had worshipped Jesus. The women worshipped just a few verses ago when they ran into the resurrected Jesus. The disciples had worshipped when Jesus walked on the water and called Peter to come to him. The, those eager to see Jesus come to Jerusalem during the triumphal procession on what we now know as Palm Sunday, they worshiped with cries of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes and in the name of the Lord. And the Magi, they worshiped by bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and bowing down to this newborn king. And those are just a few. And now the resurrected Jesus elicits worship from these disciples. Look at the text again, though. It says not only did they worship, but some did what? They doubted. Now, now when I first read that, I, I wondered to myself, does that mean that the 11 were the doubters? Does it mean maybe that there were some others that were with them that had doubted? How could you possibly be bowing down in reverence and worship and doubting at the same time? But I take this word seriously. And so when it says the 11, the 11 came, uh, it tells me that they worship and some doubted. That means some of the 11 were not only worshipers, but they were also doubters. The text seems to say that, that you can worship and doubt at the same time, that the two can coexist. The Greek word here for doubt is used only one other time in the Bible, and interestingly enough, it's used in conjunction with worship. It's used in the story when Peter walked on water, because the disciples worshiped Jesus there. And you'll recall that Peter, he asked Jesus to, to ask him to come to him. And, and Peter begins to walk on the water. And what does he do? He begins to look around. He begins to, to doubt. And he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out and rescues him. And he says to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? The same word. The word here means to, to hesitate, to waver. How many of you know that life is lived oftentimes between the tension of worship and doubt. That we're drawn to Jesus and we want to submit completely. We want to be utterly dependent. We, we want to, to not worry, to not fear, and yet we find ourselves in the middle of that trust walk, doubting again and needing to reach out for Jesus' hand to rescue us from the sinking waters. Church, let me bring this home for you. The only person who has ever completely, faithfully, perfectly fulfilled the spread of the gospel to those who are oppressed, to those who are hurting, to those who are lost, is the author of the gospel himself. Every other disciple, every other early church Christian, every church father, every great preacher, every Christian over the past 2,000 years has fallen somewhere along that spectrum of faithful to flawed. And yet... And this is what's amazing. God chooses to use us. God chooses to use broken, messed up vessels like me. 
chooses to use the foolishness, Paul says, of preaching to bring about his glory and to bring others to himself. So this morning, if you say, well, I don't have a place in the Great Commission because I'm just not there yet. I don't have the talent. I'm too young in my faith. I don't know how to share the gospel. If you were in the course this morning, now you do. You are without excuse. Every disciple of Jesus Christ is called. And God's plan is to use you, faithful and flawed, broken vessels, to bring the gospel to the world around us. Let's move to principle number two. Here it is, the power. What's the power of the commission? And here's what I would suggest to you. The authority of Jesus on earth extends our area of responsibility to all places. The authority of Jesus in heaven gives us hope for success. In the military, we talk about an AOR, our area of responsibility. It's the area that our mission is set in. It's the area that we are responsible to someone else to take care of. And Jesus says our AOR, our area of responsibility, has extended to all nations. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the first time I began to study that over the last couple of weeks, the question that immediately came to my mind is why did Jesus need to establish his authority here? Did he not have authority prior to his death and resurrection? Had he somehow given it up? No, he never lost it. And yes, he'd always had it. Well, it's only conjecture on my part, perhaps. Perhaps he spoke these words as a statement in response to the religious authorities who thought they had somehow dethroned the king of the Jews. Perhaps he spoke these words in defiance of Satan who offered him the kingdoms of this world in exchange for bowing down to him and worshiping him. And perhaps it was to remind disciples like you and I that his authority wasn't downgraded by the crucifixion. Rather, his death made him a greater king with a broader empire. As the crucified and risen son of God, Jesus Christ has and had all authority in all places at all times in heaven and on earth. John Stott Great author, great preacher, in his address to the World Conference on Evangelism in 1966 said this, Only because all authority on earth belongs to Christ are we to go to all nations. And only because all authority in heaven is also his have we any hope for success. So the power, the power behind this commission, it has earthly and heavenly ramifications. It extends our area of responsibility to every nation, to every people group on the face of this planet. And the divine heavenly authority of Jesus Christ gives us the potential for the work that we are called to. The, uh, that ought to give us boldness. It ought to, give, ought to give us confidence. Here's principle number three, the precept. Another fancy word for the command. Disciple making, here it is. Disciple making is the everyday, everywhere work of disciples. I don't know if you realize this, there's actually only one command in this entire passage. 
in the original language from the text, it's not go. Did you know that? The word go here um, is actually doesn't, wasn't a command. In actuality, the Greek for the word go here means even while you are on your way or once you have left. You see, Jesus presumes that the disciples are going to go. Their travels and their journeys are not what's up for question. The call to action is not the journey, but the action that is to be a part of the journey. Here's where I think this hits home for us, especially here. If the Great Commission is solely a command to go to other countries and peoples and lands, then we can delegate that commission to missionaries. We can delegate that commission to those who are paid to go out and do that work. Or maybe occasionally we can participate in that mission through a short-term mission trip or the likes. And if there are enough churches around us and we hire enough professional missionaries, we call them pastors, well then it's the pastor's responsibility to go and to accomplish this great mission. Perhaps a few outreach events and invite your neighbor to church event or we put a nice sign out that says all are welcome. This may be bold, but I think you're used to bold statements. I think the majority of Christians, you and I included, assume that the go of the Great Commission is for someone else. It's not for us. But if we understand the Greek language here, our comfort is turned on its head. Because essentially, Jesus says, as you're going about on the highways and the byways of life, wherever your journeys take you, there you are to be about the work. It's not a question of whether you go, but a statement of when you go. And what's that work? Well, here's the precept, the command, make disciples. Make learners of Christ. Make followers who give their lives like the earliest disciples did, forsaking all else to pursue Jesus Christ. That's the work that we're called to. And yes, it needs to happen in India and Iraq and Afghanistan and in the Amazon jungle, but it also has to happen in the halls of your school, in the shop you work in, in the squadron you belong to, in your community center, at your HOA pool, in your home. The soil for disciple-making has no boundaries geographically. Are you with me? Disciple-making is the everyday, everywhere work of disciples. It's not just the special ministry of those with a gift to do it. Continue with me in your outlines. Principle number four, the portrayal. The, the portrait. What, is, what does disciple-making look like? Disciple-making looks like baptizing and teaching. Look at the rest of verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The precept, the command, was to make disciples. Baptizing and teaching are descriptive activities of the disciple-making. They aren't separate events. They are a portrait of discipleship. They are what discipling looks like. Making a disciple means introducing them to Christ, but it can't stop there. It means getting, having them baptized and teaching them everything that Jesus has commanded them. Is that just his words in the gospel? No, it is the entirety of his word, front to back. That's what discipleship is all about. And these are the activities of discipleship. Baptizing and teaching. Think for a moment about baptism. 
It was critical in the first part of century Judaism. There were a multitude of baptismal pools at the southern steps in Jerusalem. Baptism was an inauguration ritual and an external indicator of an internal change demonstrating a cleansing of one's heart and life. And Jesus takes this ritual that they were familiar with and he applies the imagery of rebirth in him to it. For a disciple, then, it signifies the death of oneself with Christ to sin and the resurrection with Christ to new life in him. And the act of going under the water and emerging isn't the means of salvation. Rather, the act points to salvation that has already occurred. And here's an important note. You didn't go and baptize yourself. You didn't go and baptize yourself in private for no one else to know about it. No, baptism was a public act. It was a community event by which the internal change was given external expression and public witness. So Jesus says, disciple by baptizing. He also says, disciple by teaching, teaching these new followers to observe everything he's commanded them. As a teenager, I had a chance to be involved in countless evangelistic efforts. I had a chance to go to a lot of different cities and share my faith on teams. And I traveled to Russia and India. I preached. I led others to Christ. And when I did, can I be honest with you? I thought I had fulfilled the Great Commission. The trouble is, the Great Commission is not completely fulfilled when people are converted. If I were to ask you to raise your hands today in an invitation and ask you to give your lives to Christ and then stop there, I have cut short the work of the Great Commission. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. Disciple making looks like making or baptizing and teaching all that Christ taught. That means steeping those new followers in the gospel and in the entirety of the word of God. Does that mean that going out to, on short-term mission trips and sharing the gospel is wrong? Absolutely not. Please don't hear me say that. I'm saying it's only a part of what we are called to be about we teach them, we steep them in the word of God through public worship, through preaching. We do that through small groups. We do that through Sunday school. We do that through Bible study. We do that through one-on-one -on -one meetings with each other and intentional discipleship. You see, the Great Commission is only fulfilled when we bring others to Christ, we baptize them, and we teach them. There's one more principle. Here it is, the promise. The promise. And, I, and here it is, the protagonist is present and our proclamation. Sorry for all the alliteration. I just couldn't resist there. Who's the protagonist? The protagonist is the center of the story. Who's the center of our story? It is none other than Jesus Christ himself. And what's amazing about this, look at what verse 20 says. Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The author of the gospel and the main character of the gospel promises us that he's going to go with us as we tell his story. He doesn't just say, here's the good news, go out and share it. No, he says, not only is here's the good news, but I'm going to go out with you wherever you go and share it. As we go about that every day, everywhere work of making disciples, we don't go alone. We go in his presence. And we go even to the end of the age when Revelation says the church, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the community of the redeemed is gathered to worship for all eternity in a time and a place where he will dwell with us and he will be our God and we will be his people. Church, let me encourage you this morning. This isn't just a promise to be fulfilled. This is a statement. Jesus Christ goes with us in the proclamation of the gospel. This morning, even as I proclaim the good news, Jesus Christ is with me. 
He's present around our city this morning wherever the gospel is being proclaimed. He's present in every nation through the sharing of the good news in whatever language it has been translated. He's right in the middle of all we do to make disciples. And the one who early in Matthew was called Emmanuel, God with us, is at the end of Matthew declaring, I will be God with you forever and ever. Now I need to wind this up. Maybe before I do, I want to ask you, how do you understand these words? What do you do to apply the Great Commission? Well, let me tell you about the way some people have understood the Great Commission throughout church history. In 1981, a group of believers at Rainbow Hills Baptist Church read the Great Commission, and they understood it as a call to eventually plant a church in the northwest corner of San Antonio. That church would become Calvary Hills Baptist Church. About eight years before that, A group of believers at Pruitt Avenue Baptist Church read the Great Commission, and they understood it as a call to plant a church in the growing and unreached neighborhood of Rainbow Hills in San Antonio. Take a much further jump back in history, and in the 1860s, a group of Baptists who had come to San Antonio saw that we didn't have a Baptist church here. They read the Great Commission, and they understood it as a call to plant the first Baptist church in San Antonio. 30 years before that, Baptist missionaries came to Texas. There was no Baptist church in Texas, and they read the Great Commission, and they heard it as a call to plant a church in Texas, and so the first Baptist church was planted here in Texas. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, a preacher you may have heard of before, a man named Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, as we often refer to him, well, he read the Great Commission. He was so serious about the Great Commission that he trained preachers and sent them out and encouraged his people to go out and be a part of church planting. A century before that, two brothers, John and Charles Wesley and a man named George Whitfield, they were so impassioned by the Great Commission that they preached in anywhere they could go, whether it be cemeteries or they didn't care. They preached everywhere and ultimately they would plant churches in the United States or on this continent. 200 years before that, a man named John Kelvin He read the Great Commission, and he led the underground church in Switzerland to church planting that within four years had grown from five to 2,000 congregations. That's how they understood the Great Commission, a call to plant churches. Take a much larger jump back to the book of Acts. The church that had been planted in Antioch by dispersed disciples sent out their own church planters, Saul, also called Paul, and Barnabas. And if you read Acts, you'll recall that over the course of just 13 years, missionary journeys covered at least 7,000 miles and planted at least 14 new congregations. Church throughout history, from the time of the Apostle Paul to our own foundation in 1981, believers have heard the Great Commission as a call to plant disciple-making factories. Churches. And yet somehow, most churches today have stopped doing so. As we watch San Antonio become one of the fastest growing cities in our nation, churches are continuing to die around us. You don't see it all the time because some of our churches are big. We have mega churches in this city, that, and by, the mega church deceives us into thinking that the church is alive and well in San Antonio, when in reality as many as 85% of our population have not been reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus never said that there's an exception clause in the Great Commission that once you become a part of a culture that has enough churches, you can stop doing this. That was never said. 
Jesus never said once you hire a preacher and you put up a sign that says all are welcome or you put your sermons out online on Facebook and on the internet for the world to tune in, you can stop going and making these disciple-making places. That was never said. And yet we act as if it has been. If you've been following along in your outlines, there's one more statement I want to draw your attention to. In his book, Church Planting Primer, my friend Clint Clifton writes this. The Great Commission is fulfilled by church planting. And the Great Commission cannot properly be fulfilled without church planting. Now that may seem like a bold statement, but if you think about the substance of the Great Commission, baptizing, teaching, making disciples, you'd have to agree that there is no other organization on the face of this earth that baptizes and teaches and makes disciples. It's only the church. And since discipleship looks like baptism and teaching, and both baptism and teaching are activities that require the community of believers, then the only way to fulfill this commission of multiplying disciples is to multiply communities of disciples. Right around us here in San Antonio, there are regions. In fact, not even far from where we worship this morning. On this northwest corner of San Antonio, there are thousands of homes that have been and are being built. And there are no churches reaching that population. I want to close with this call to action. And these are, these are five steps that I've had to take myself over the past few years as I've come to a newfound understanding of the Great Commission. You see, like many of you, I was never opposed to starting new churches. I always thought it was a great idea. But I didn't understand that church planting isn't just another means of fulfilling the Great Commission, it is the primary means through which the Great Commission has been fulfilled. The substantive activities of the Great Commission, baptizing and teaching, are the activities that can only be accomplished by churches. And if we are to disciple nations, to reach unreached peoples, it means we've got to start new churches. So here's what God's done in me, and I want to ask you to consider as your call to action this morning. Number one, confess your inactivity. Maybe you're a long ways from ever being a part of a church plant because you haven't even been sharing your faith. Maybe this morning you need to get on your knees before God and confess the fact that you have not been about disciple making. Confess your inactivity and, 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 and say to God, I never understood how important, how central this was to the gospel and to your call on my life before. And after you confess, resolve to be involved. You see, the result of confessing in Scripture is repentance, which means turning from your prior lifestyle. It means turning from your prior mindset. I would encourage you to resolve to be involved, to, to say to God, I, I'm going to do something. Number three, and this is what I've had to do with myself and my life and my family, and that's avail myself and my resources. Say to God, I don't know what you have in mind, but I'm ready to give of my time. I'm ready to give of my money. I'm ready to give of my family to do whatever you want me to do to be a part of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number four, pray for a passion for church planting. Pray that God would enlarge your heart. You know, the amazing thing for me has been in the areas where I have resisted God the most, when I finally surrender my will, God gives me a heart for it. That happened most recently in our lives in the area of foster care. And I'll talk to you another time about that. But I didn't want to be obedient to God. And once I became obedient, God gave me a heart. And I want to say I believe the same thing can be true about church planting. Ask God for a heart for this. And finally, respond in obedience. 
at the conclusion of our service this morning, you're going to be introduced to a church planner. Jared's a part of a network of churches that I belong to that takes this mandate to plant churches very seriously. And is currently following God's lead to plant churches here in San Antonio, Texas. Pastor Jared Cress and I began talking about this initiative months ago, and I know that even as he left, he did so fully supporting what was going to be shared this morning. And I want to ask you this morning to listen and ask God how you might be involved. Would you pray with me?